Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Vynamic's Brian Schachter to talk about what's trending now. Brian, thanks for stepping in while Ryan is taking some much needed vacation time. There has been a lot of movement in the, the market and no shortage of headline news. So I'm curious, what headlines have you been following lately? Hi, Mindy, and thanks for having me here today. When I see the news over the past couple of weeks, the biggest thing that's stepping out to me right now is the Inflation Reduction Act, which was just recently passed by both the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. The Inflation Reduction Act is a $750 billion healthcare tax and climate bill, which is representing a significant win for President Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. It's representing the largest climate investment in U.S. history and can make significant changes to healthcare policy by giving Medicare the power for the first time to negotiate the prices of certain prescription drugs and extend expiring healthcare subsidies for three additional years. We have not seen legislation like this since really the passage of the Affordable Care Act. You mentioned the word sweeping. I definitely think sweeping is probably the right word to describe this because of just the number of things that it's covering, right? We know it's covering some investment in climate, addressing some corporate taxation. And then when we get to healthcare, some major, major changes in healthcare. And while we've seen some other legislation passed through the years, like the Cures Act and MACRA, I think this one is really broad in nature. I also think the big thing about this legislation is some of the caps that it puts on out-of-pocket spending for prescription drugs which we know is also another big piece of the headline news that we've been seeing. Talk to me a little bit more about what has struck you about this bill. The one thing I wanna quickly anchor back on is the cap limit that you are referencing. This Inflation Reduction Act is intended to put a $2,000 cap on Medicare's out-of-pocket limit, which is ultimately going to make a profound impact on individuals who are living with a limited financial budget. Another point that I wanted to anchor on is that Javier Becerra of the HHS wants to negotiate the prices of 10 drugs in 2026 and another 15 drugs in 2027 and 2028, and that number would rise to 20 drugs a year for 2029 and beyond. And what this does is it's ultimately going to allow Medicare to identify and target specific drugs that have a profound impact on individuals on Medicare to negotiate those drug rates and really make it more of a competitive market for individuals that need these life-saving drugs. But something that stuck out to me that the HHS really has to figure out and provide some clarity into is how these drugs are going to be identified and targeted. Now, I'm not sure off the top of my head if this is going to be driven at the unit cost level per drug, or if it's the total volume of drugs that are sold annually, or if it's looked at from a value-based perspective. Do you have any insight onto this? I think with any piece of legislation, what we need to wait and see is what the rules are that roll out to support the execution of the legislation. 
Um, and also recall, right, that this is still a number of years out. The benefit of being able to negotiate doesn't actually go into play until 2026. But if we think about it from an expenditure standpoint, we could probably look at some products that are in market currently and maybe earlier in their life cycle and see how they're trending from a Medicare expenditure standpoint. There are definitely some companies that may be more uh, exposed to this negotiation process than others. I'm thinking of products that are in the market now in, in really big patient populations, right, that probably have large Medicare populations. They likely are going to be at the top of the list. And given what we've read so far and some of the benchmark pricing that's going to be established and used, my bet would be that the methodology is going to be on a unit price basis rather than total volume. I think that Medicare will likely look at total volume of expenditure and that will help them filter where they get to with the 10 contenders that they will likely want to negotiate in 2026 and, and beyond. So. This starts next year in 2024 in terms of Health and Human Services actually establishing a list of targets. So I think we'll have a much better idea by then. But in the meantime, rules have to actually be rolled out. And until we see those rules that specify some of the implementation specifics, I think we are probably just going to have to wait and be patient and, and see how that kind of plays itself out as a result of this legislation being passed. The one thing that stands out to me, Brian, when you were talking about the $2,000 cap was if we think about the industry side of things, we're talking about Medicare negotiating. We're also talking about a provision that's incorporated in this bill that caps inflation. They call it the inflation cap. It's intended to deter prescription drug prices from rising faster than inflation. For all of these th uh, medications that reside in the part D section of Medicare that cost under $100 and many Part B prescription drugs. And in addition to that, uh, the legislation also repeals the drug rebate rule, which went into effect very late in President Trump's administration um, and was rethought once the Congressional Budget Office took a look at it and decided that it would actually increase Medicare premiums versus decrease. So there's a lot of pieces to this bill I think in terms of provisions that stand out to me beyond just Medicare negotiating, but trying to cover elements of leakage, right, that happen in the industry when it comes to prices and how they impact Medicare beneficiaries when it comes to out-of-pocket spending. You mentioned the inflation caps that are being put into place. While these drugs won't be targeted until 2026, you know, I think the inflation cap is going to be very important because I don't know where we'll be two years from now. If we've learned anything over the past two years through the pandemic is that an inflationary cap could be a very important lever that we can pull on to make sure that we're staying within our Medicare's budgets as well as individuals' means. The one thing that I did notice was missing from this act was there was an insulin price cap that was not included under private insurance plans. It was only included for Medicare Part B coverage. Do you have any idea why they would have done that? I think it all comes down to negotiation, right? Getting bills like this passed, we know that, that back in December, right, when the Build Back Better 
Act was a much larger economic piece of legislation than this particular act. And it died on the vine. And I think with the slim majority that was given in the Senate, everything is a trade-off. And so I'm sure that this was part of the language that was stripped in order to perhaps win over certain senators and keep it very focused on Medicare rather than pushing this out to the rest of the industry. Brian, obviously, this piece of legislation is big-time headline news. It's something we will continue to follow as we start to see the industry react, obviously, to the legislation and how that starts to impact decisions that need to be made, strategies placed in the market, as well as the way the companies may even operate as a result of, of the legislation. Pivoting just a little bit, though, I think there are some other headlines out there that you and I have talked about, and I would love to hear what some of these others are that have been on your mind, because I know you've been excited about a couple of them. Outside of the Inflation Reduction Act, another headline that I've been following is that the FDA has given a priority review of Zintegla, which is a gene therapy drug for rare blood disorders. I'm curious from your perspective, like why is Zintegla and Bluebird Bio headline news for you? Zintegla to me really marks a, a pivot point where you're moving away from these you know, heavily commercialized therapy products into a gene therapy drug, which is really bespoke to the individual. And so when you think about how you can treat and care for people, I'm excited because this is ultimately going to be a more personalized approach to care that hopefully has better results than many are experiencing under broadly commercialized pharmaceutical drugs. You look at Bluebird's history and some of the mountains that they have had to climb to try to get Zintegro to FDA approval. And they're still not there, but I do think it's a pivotal point in, in cell and gene therapy because we know that this is where the science is headed. This is where the R&D investment dollars are headed in the life sciences industry. What's fascinating to me is that Bluebird Bio has managed to not only stay afloat, but now produce some really promising results from a product in a rare disease space that could gain approval. FDA advisory panel right, has given um, overwhelming support of it. I think what has also been promising is that ICER, which is the independent body that is used in the United States to assess the value of a product, has indicated that even with a very high price tag, that Zintegro brings extraordinary value to patients that are suffering from beta thalassemia. And the other point that you made that was interesting is when you think about Zintegro and the way that it works, it's an ex vivo drug, right? Versus a therapy versus an in vivo, meaning that you have to extract it out of somebody's body. You have to reformat it and then reinfuse it. So that requires the entire healthcare system to be a part of the solution. The therapy is one part of it. But I do think in, in rare diseases, we are going to see a lot of cell and gene therapies headed that way. And, and the question becomes for me, is how do payers handle all of this, right? We have to start thinking as a, a system in the United States much more creatively in terms of how do you pay for these types of products when you're moving beyond symptom control and disease progression into therapies that could have a curative nature to them. 
this is not your everyday transactional therapy. And that, I think that's what's been interesting to me. And, and I guess curious to me is like, how do these value-based payment over time models start to get structured? And are they applicable when you have cell and gene therapies that may be in populations where there's high prevalence of disease and not necessarily rare disease? To your point, Zintegro is this inflection point where we start to ask those types of questions and really put pressure on the structure of the, the US healthcare system to start to really contend with those questions because there's no doubt more, more therapies are following. Right, and you know, I'll, I'll respond to both of those points. The one being the science of where gene and cell therapies are going. If you look at CAR-Ts, it's completely reinvigorated the cancer market. Uh, but then you also mentioned how insurance providers are going to pay for this, right? We're at the cusp. We're at the inflection point. What does that mean? And, and does it fall under a traditional value-based care agreement? Or do we need to start thinking about a brand new payment model that's reflective of these new highly valuable drugs, as well as the expensive price tag associated with it? So you know, it's going to require a lot of thought and deliberation in terms of how you can most appropriately share those costs as well as pay for it from a competitive nature, but then also from a value-based perspective. Right. And this is where you start to see, I think, other types of services come into play in the channel, right? When you start talking about specialty pharmacies and value-based administrators who are going to have to track the patient data over a period of time, reinsurance models, right, will, will likely appear because we are talking about prices that will be seven figures and possibly one and done, right? So the investment in these types of therapies is really an upfront investment for a long-term benefit. That is so contrary to the way that the U.S. healthcare system has really thought about contracting, reimbursement, even treatment of patients as more and more of these these products start to come to the market, I do think there's some really big questions that payers, providers, life sciences organizations are going to have to bring their strengths together to come up with some creative solutions that benefit all the stakeholders, but most of all benefit patients. I couldn't agree with you more. Brian, I know offline, you and I have had some conversations about just generally speaking, what's going on in the healthcare market, but specifically in the primary care market and what an inflection point the primary care market is at right now and some of the, the movement in that, that area that's shaking up the market. So we know it's been a hot market for years. Like we have talked about primary care being one of the hottest areas that, that many healthcare industry incumbents have wanted to play in. And now we're starting to see new entrants come into this market as well as large U.S. retailers are placing really big bets, right, on the healthcare system. And I look at just what's happened recently with Amazon and their deal to buy one medical for $3.9 billion. I mean, that's a huge number, but it instantly, right, gives them a share of the primary care market. And we know Amazon, that's kind of the, the way that they, they do things. I thought it was equally as interesting when CVS announced right on the heels of Amazon's acquisition of One Medical that they have 
every intention of acquiring a significant share of primary care practices by the year end. So we are having this conversation in, in August. The year end is not far off. That would tell me that CVS is going to move extremely aggressively to acquire probably some very sizable primary care practices so that they can establish their footprint in this market very quickly. What about other U.S. retailers? Where do we think this is going to go? History gives us an indication of where this is going. Clearly in the, the healthcare market, right, we have seen health plans dive headfirst into acquiring primary care providers. We've also seen health systems basically transition into employing primary care providers. I think part of what's important about primary care is that it runs parallel to the conversation we've had in the industry around value-based arrangements and how important value-based arrangements are in trying to you know, bend the curve or the cost curve as, as we commonly talk about in healthcare. And in order to really have a well-positioned, well-performing value-based arrangement, it's really critical to have a strong primary care foothold. So I think when we look at rising costs, demographic shifts, things like digital disruption, it's primed the market, right, to make these moves into primary care and use that as a foothold to establishing where it is that healthcare organizations want to go in the future, right? How they reframe and reshape the way that they are showing up with their product and their service offering, and also the value that they bring in the healthcare market. And at the heart of that is primary care. So I would not be surprised to see more new entrants, right? Or some of these re big retailers that have maybe played in the pharmacy space really establish the presence in primary care as well. Those are where the, the indications are. And I think when you start to see Amazon and CVS make those moves, we know that some of the other big players are probably not too far behind. Traditional providers have struggled a bit to find their footing in value-based care agreements. And, you know, it's going to be curious to see how these digital disruptors really help these traditional providers kind of reevaluate where they are and to figure out how they can move forward in this digital disruption. A statistic that I was finding is that only about 7% of total healthcare spending today is based upon population-based reimbursements, such as partial and full capitation payments. And you know, these non-traditional players are starting to gain a little bit more traction in the market because they're looking at these traditional providers and they're looking to identify where they can bring in you know, new care and reimbursement models to help that market shift along that curve that you were mentioning before with either a bigger focus on virtual care or on flexible arrangements to really benefit both providers and patients going forward. It's going to be curious to see where these digital disruptors have the ability to partition out part of that market cap over the next coming five and 10 years to figure out what that's going to look like from a new traditional model. You know, Mindy, have you given any thought to what these new emerging focus areas are going to be for these digital disruptors? Care models is something that we have talked about for a little while, and, and we've observed, right, new care models emerging as there has been just a heightened focus on 
value-based arrangements, on specific types of populations, on broader adoption of multidisciplinary care teams. And when you think about some of the other pressures, right, that are on the healthcare system, I think the physician shortage is one of the major driving forces for change in almost any care model that we will see come to the market because there is a real acknowledgement that the demand just simply outpaces the supply. We knew this was an issue for many years on the horizon. It has just been exacerbated and accelerated as a result of COVID. And so as we talk about this idea of, of new care models and what digital disruptors or new entrants into the market could do versus traditional incumbents, I think it's gonna probably be different types of partnerships that also emerge. And as a result of all of that, right, new care models will come to light, but many things have to happen for new care models to also be okay. And that includes regulatory bodies accepting and improving them. It includes you know, the shift of mindset and operating models. And so I don't think this is going to happen immediately. It is going to be something that's paced over time. And in the background of all of this, we are contending with the real issue of a clinician work shortage that I think is one that has been probably under discussed and yet is, is a linchpin to success for many of these care models that we see emerging as a result of all these new entities jumping into the market and focusing on primary care. This shortage is not going to be sustainable over the coming five and 10 years because you know, what I've seen is that a number of primary hospitals in your large metropolitan areas are really understaffed. And you know, what does that mean from a care perspective? Uh, and so it's going to be curious to see how this continues to develop over time and see where providers are taking additional efforts to attract and retain talent. Thank you for, for taking the time to chat with me today about some of the headlines that you've been keeping an eye on. As we know, healthcare is constantly changing and I will be interested in seeing what we talk about in the next episode of Trending Health News. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, Subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change. Please visit TrendingHealth.com.